0: You are listening to the weekend message of Crossroads Church, North Campus. Crossroads exists to make much of Jesus, and we do this by following in the way of Jesus and making disciples who love God and love others. To find out more about Crossroads, go to CrossroadsLive.com. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace. I'm going to invite Pam to come on up. She's going to read first this morning. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, verse 21, and stand with us as we read this morning. Good morning. Well, we haven't got washed away yet, huh, guys? (laughs) Yeah, praying for those folks. All right. Luke chapter 3, and we are in verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. That's it. (laughs) You may be seated. (laughs) short and sweet. We step into a, a passage um, that carries with it a lot of importance um, as, as God breaks open the heavens and speaks to Jesus of, of who he is. And, and that question of, of who are you uh, is a pretty important question for us. It's not usually how we go about conversations. When you're meeting someone new, your first uh, question to them usually isn't, who are you? you know, that, that's not how we go. We, we might say, what's your name? And then where do we go from there? Well, what do you what do? You do? Right? And then we look for points of connection. And that question of identity is an important one, but we often find ourselves uh, settling for just simply, well, I am, I am what I do. I, I'm, I'm my job. I'm the sum of my habits. I'm the sum of my, my choices. I was reminded of this yesterday. I have a, an interesting quirk where I was at a basketball game and someone next to me leaned over and, and handed and said, hey, would you, you, want, you want any gum? Um, and I said, no. And, and, and if you ever ask me if I would like any gum, just know I'm not being rude. Uh, I don't chew gum. Um, from from early on, I haven't. And so I always laugh when, so, when someone does that. And I always feel like this need to explain myself. Well, let me tell you who I am. I'm not a gum chewer. There's something really weird about it. But then it gets into this weird moment uh, where the, people are like, why don't you like chewing gum? And then if I describe that, it's kind of disturbing for everyone because I'm like, it's weird to me that you put something in your mouth and you just leave it there, chewing on it over and over and over and over and over again. That's really kind of gross, isn't it? You know?" And then it becomes this judgment upon them That I'm like, I don't chew gum because I'm better than you. That's not what I'm trying to say. That's not what I'm trying to say at all. And that's not who I am. I'm not just a non-gum chewer. But but we identify with different things, different groups, right? I identify as a Bears fan. I, I am always rooting for the Bears and during the playoffs that means I don't have to really pay any attention to football. Uh, My my family, uh, my wife and my son are big Bills fans, so they are uh, really sacrificing today as they're serving in kids ministry as the Bills play at 10 o'clock. I'll admit I'm not a Niners fan, but I was thankful that the Niners played yesterday because it meant that most of you would show up today um, and come to church, which I thought was great. But we have all these different ways that we identify who we are. And some of those are positive. Some of those are, are negative. Sometimes it's a family association. Sometimes it's a place that you, you lived in that becomes this kind of connecting point. But others of us have narratives in our heads that, that live there where maybe that family connection isn't positive. Maybe the way in which we think about ourselves is that we're just a constant failure, that we are a sum of our habits, our addictions, our failures, and and that hinders us in the way in which we walk through life. That question of who are you seems so simple, but it can haunt us when we allow it to have a voice from somebody else because identity truly does matter. In his book, Uh, Atomic Habits, uh, James Clear, he speaks to the importance of how identity actually forms our habits. And he uses the examples of uh, someone who is a smoker or trying to quit smoking. And he says that those who, uh, when offered a cigarette, say, oh, you know what, I'm trying to quit smoking, are less successful than those who, when offered a cigarette, say, oh, I don't smoke. Because by saying, I don't smoke, you're you're making that very clear. That's just not an option for me. I'm I'm trying to be something different than what I once was. Now, while I understand that uh, not smoking or smoking is probably not the issue that sits before us this morning, or at least all of us, the idea behind it is one that shapes us. Because who we are is an important question. How we answer that question and prioritize that question matters because people are quick to tell us who they think we are or who we should be. And again, we're quick to tell ourselves. We're often quick to sell ourselves short in that conversation. But whose matter or whose voice is the one that matters most? Whose voice is the one that we are listening to and allowing to define us? And what we see in this passage is that in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it was marked by a clear declaration of who he was and who he is. And Luke, in pulling out this passage for us, he also reminds us that uh, this good news of who Jesus is was not just for some people, but this good news has come for all of us. And so, when it comes to who we are, it begins with knowing who we are in Jesus. This is fundamental to our identity. So, let's turn back to uh, Luke chapter 3 and beginning in verse 21. It says, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. And just remember for context here, last week we looked at John the Baptist who was out. He was preaching a baptism of repentance that we needed to turn back towards God and and to repent of our sinful ways and to, to look towards him. And so he's gathering people all around him. He's preparing the way for Jesus. John knew he was not the Messiah, but that he had come to declare and proclaim and to clear the path for the coming Messiah. And so when it says, now when all the people were baptized, this group of people that had wandered out into the wilderness of the Jordan River, and they were being baptized by John with this baptism of repentance. And we read, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying there's some questions there for us aren't there each of the gospels gives us this account that jesus was baptized but the question for us is is a good one i think when we go why why was jesus baptized because if john was preaching a baptism of repentance a needing to turn from one direction to another a uh, needing to uh, for forgiveness in one's life why would jesus the perfect and sinless one need to be baptized. What we see throughout Scripture is is that Jesus, fully God, fully divine, lived a perfect sinless life. Therefore he had no reason to repent. Uh, I love how Paul states this in his second letter to the Corinthians uh, in verse 521. It says, for our sake, he made him, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What Paul's referring to there is that our righteousness is not a result of our own good deeds and hard-earned actions. No, our righteousness is a result of the sinless one who lived on our behalf being Jesus. And so if Jesus is the perfect sinless one who had no reason to repent, why do we see him coming and being baptized in this moment? Well, in Matthew's account of this baptism... We're told that John, when Jesus approached him and said, I need you to baptize me, that John would have prevented this. He was like, no, 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 this is, this is backwards. I, I should not be doing this. But Jesus pushed him. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 3.15? He says, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all Righteousness. And what does that mean? To fulfill all righteousness. Well, I couldn't say it better than how I read it from R.T. France. And so I'm going to read what he said. He says, Righteousness in Matthew is not so much being good, still less legal correctness, but rather a synonym for the Christian life viewed as a relationship with God focused in obedience. It was this relationship with John's baptism demanded in which now requires Jesus to identify himself with the penitent people, those who are turning towards God, the people of God, in order to fulfill his mission. So Jesus regards his baptism among repentant Israel as a necessary step in his accomplishment of God's purpose of salvation. To, to shrink that down even further, what's Jesus doing? Why is he being baptized in this moment? He's identifying with us. He's paving the way for us. He has come to live the life that we could not live on our own or in our own strength. He's come to mend and to repair the relationship that has been broken since Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden. He's come to be the perfect Adam who lived as we were meant to live in relationship with God. And he's paving the way and he's saying, follow me. This is the path that goes before you. He is our forerunner as Hebrews uh, 6.20 states. And so he has come to live the life we could not, that all may have life in him. Even his baptism. He's saying, follow me. Like the Israelite people crossing the Jordan River. Now Jesus is being baptized in the Jordan as his ministry begins. And he's once again, he's inviting us into a new exodus. A new freedom that is found in him. And so Jesus was baptized, not because he needed to repent, but because he was paving the way for us. He was identifying with our sufferings, our flawedness, what we needed to do. He modeled the way in which we are to go. But what's, what's so interesting in this account, because Luke doesn't give us a lot of details. Some of the other gospels give us more detail about this baptism. Luke's just like, and he was baptized. doesn't even say John baptized him, just kind of moving through. But he does give us this one little kind of orphan detail that we can just run past. And it says, now when all people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying... Now, what have we already seen and what will we continue to see as a priority in, in the gospel of Luke? Prayer. He's going to point us to prayer over and over again. He's going to point us to Jesus modeling what it means to go before the Father. And so we're going to see prayer uh, pop up all over the place. And so we see that after prayer, that Jesus was baptized, he was praying there comes this significant moment in his life. And we're going to see actually throughout Luke's account that after Jesus spends time in prayer, significant things happen. And here's no difference. So when Jesus had been baptized and he was praying, it says, The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from the heaven, You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. Now we're going to break down what's happening here in just a moment, but I want to continue to beat the drum of prayer because it's so important. We have to remember that prayer positions us to hear the voice of God. Prayer positions us to hear the voice of God. This is so important. It's so simple, so simplistic. We hear it all the time in church. Uh, You should pray. You should spend time with God. And we go, I should do that. And yet we find so many other reasons to be distracted in our lives. So many other things to give attention to. And Jesus, in being our forerunner, going before us, modeling for us what it means to live fully connected to God. He models a life of prayer. So again, if we want to hear from God, we need to pause and we need to pray. We must prioritize our prayer time with him. If you want to grow in your relationship with Jesus, then you need to spend time with him in conversation with him. You need to be in the word. You need to be listening, responding, abiding, and acting on his way and on his will. Prioritize that, but prayer positions us to hear the voice of God. And so here, Jesus, he's baptized and was praying when suddenly the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So let's just take this this moment apart for just a second. As Jesus was praying, suddenly the heavens were opened The heavens opening, uh, oftentimes in prophetic literature, is a, a sign of divine intervention, divine revelation. Something is moving in the clouds. The clouds are parting and there's something to be seen. And as the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove... And so here the Holy Spirit is coming upon Jesus uh, and we're told that it was like a dove. We're actually told that in each of the gospel accounts. Here Luke is using things we understand to describe something unlike anything we've ever seen. We're unsure of what this fully looked like other than something in the bodily form like a dove descended, but it gives us an indication that there was something that was observable descending upon Jesus, anointing Jesus in this moment, filling him with the Spirit. Luke would later use the image of tongues of fire that would rest on the disciples' heads after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. This visual imagery of the Spirit descending upon his people. But that first began when the Spirit descended upon Jesus in this moment. The Spirit here, anointing, empowering, equipping, and leading Jesus. Remember, he's the forerunner. He's patterning for us what it looks like to have a flourishing relationship with the Father. And a flourishing relationship with the Father requires the the anointing, the indwelling of the Spirit in our life. And so the spirit descends upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. And now we have God speaking. And to what he says here in this moment, we're we're going to pay attention, but but I want us to focus here that what we are witnessing in the writings of Luke is this moment where the Holy Trinity, uh, God in three persons, is before us. The great mystery that our Lord, uh, the, our Lord, our God, the Lord who is one, but is in three persons. The doctrine of the Trinity. There is one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's, it's one of these truths that we see it and we go, yes, and then we walk away from it and we go, how? You know, we, we have that moment where it explodes in our mind and yet we see this beautiful interplay here. Where the Father who has sent the Son is opening the heavens. The Spirit is descending upon him, empowering and leading him. Jesus, the obedient one, living in perfect uh, relationship with the Father, obeying the Father's will. And now the Father is speaking over and declaring just who this Jesus is. And what does he say to him in this moment? He says, you are my beloved Son." You're my beloved son." We hear those words, and we imagine the scene, God the Father speaking to the Son. Jesus hasn't done anything yet, and what's he hearing from his Father? "You are my beloved." Now some of you in this room, you've felt the full force of someone speaking that over you, that you are the loved. And you took it in and you embraced it and you, you felt it. There was a confidence that grew from that. Some of you in this room, you felt the absence of that. That sense that you aren't loved. That no one ever has expressed that truly to you. And so in this moment, it's good for us to pause. We, we know that Jesus was the perfect sinless one. And yet... We have a great high priest who sympathizes with us in all of our weaknesses, who suffered on this earth. And so hearing this, Jesus is hearing his father saying, you are my beloved son. Now there's more than meets the eye happening here because uh, the words that are being used here have echoes from Psalm uh, 2.7. And Psalm 2 7 says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It's speaking to the one who would uh, come, this future king who has come in Jesus. This king who is spoken of in in Psalm 2 is spoken as the son of the Lord. He's the instrument of God's righteous rule and reign over unruly nations. And here... Echoing these words of Psalm 2, 7, God is saying, you are my son. You are my beloved son. But but I want to point something else out that's that's unique here. Because this is actually the first use of, of any form of the word loved in this gospel. And last week, uh, my friend Dan pointed this out to me, and and he said, uh, after, actually after church on Sunday, he said, "Hey, do you know where the first use of love is in each of the Gospels?" And I started playing that game that I do, kind of going through like, I think, I think so. And what I found. And what he pointed out to me is that in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, in the, the synoptic gospels, as they're often called, because they, they share similar sources. They have a similar form. Uh, John's gospel is a little unique. But where we see this word first used is in Matthew 3.17, Mark 1.11, and Luke 3.22. When God is saying, you are my beloved son. But in John, the first place we see love used Is for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, why do I point this out? Because God is first and foremost calling his son the beloved one. But God in his great love for us, what does he do? He sends his beloved one to come and to rescue us. He sends the beloved to the ones that he loves. Now, I want to take this just a step further because I was thinking through, uh, where do we see love first mentioned in Genesis, the beginning of Scripture? Well, the word for love actually does not show up until the story of Abraham sacrificing his son, whom he loved. Now, if you remember that story, it's not one that we like to read all the time because it's a hard story, where Abraham is told by God to go and sacrifice his son, Isaac, Isaac. And we hear that and we shudder today. Back in Abraham's day, that was a normal mode of interacting with God that you would sacrifice children. That didn't seem like a a big deal. but, But Abraham's wrestling with this, the child of promise that God had given him. And he's saying, go and sacrifice him. But what we see in this moment is the one whom Abraham loved, his one and only son, God would provide another way. And in doing so, God was reminding Abraham that he, he was different than the other gods and what he required. That he would not require uh, our sons and daughters, but that he would send his only son for us that we might live. The beloved one would come for the ones that he loves. See, we see what's taking shape is that God is providing in Jesus not just a way, but the ultimate way. The beloved son has come to rescue and to restore humanity, whom God loves, is in pursuit of. He has every reason to abandon us, and yet he continues to pursue. Uh, But before we get to that, we have to come back to what is he saying here to Jesus? He's saying, you are my beloved son. When he finishes, with you, I am well pleased. With you, I am well pleased. Again, this phrase, with you, I am well pleased, has roots in Isaiah 42.1. Where God is speaking of his servant that he would send to the people. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, in whom I am well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. This servant who was to come, we read more about in Isaiah 53, he'd be the suffering servant who would take on the sins of all humanity. And this servant is, is Jesus, the beloved son in whom God is well pleased. And so notice where Jesus' ministry begins with a clear declaration from God of who he is. Jesus would start his ministry, his work, with the knowledge and the identity that he is the beloved son of God in whom God is well pleased. This is the voice, the identity that would shape the life of Jesus as he lived in obedience to the Father. So who is Jesus? He is the beloved son of God. This is an important distinction for us to grab hold of. And we, we run through this passage so many times, but God is declaring here that servant who I promised would come, the one that you've been waiting for, that righteous king who would rule over all people, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So pay attention. Take heed, listen to his words, follow his life, pattern yourself after him, for this is my beloved. And now, uh, with that established, Luke takes this slight detour. He's shown us the infant Jesus, he's shown us the preteen Jesus, and now he's showing us the beginnings of Rabbi Jesus. As we read on in verse uh, 23. Jesus when he began his ministry was about 30 years of age. About 30 years of age. This this actually is about the time when a, a rabbi could begin taking on students in in the book of numbers uh, in chapter 4 it talks around this was the age where you could begin taking on priestly duties. And so we see that this timeline fits the beginning of uh, Jesus' ministry. That he was growing in stature and growing in, uh, the, in his way with God and also his appeal to men. Uh, but then uh, he now is at the age where he can begin his ministry. And then... Again, just another detour. We have this baptism, he's praying, the heavens open, God speaks, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. All of these important things are happening. Uh, And and Jesus beginning his ministry about the age of 30. And then now we jump into the genealogy of Jesus. You know, the the passages that we all just memorize and sit with and, and love to read And it says, when Jesus began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. Now, what's Luke reminding us of here? As was supposed of Joseph. He's making it very clear. Jesus was born by supernatural means. He was born of the virgin birth, that that Mary had no earthly father for Jesus. There was no earthly husband that that bore this son. No, God did something supernatural and unique in bringing Jesus into this world. Now, Joseph, by all accounts, would be the legal adoptive father of Jesus and would carry on the responsibilities as his earthly father. And from what we know, he, he carried that out. But then we get this whole list, and we're going to go for it. I'm just going to read through this whole list. And we'll see how we do. But that way you don't have to later. We're just going to hit it right now. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Genai the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsli, the son of Negai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son. of of Sheltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of El the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam the son of Elikium, the son of Melah, the son of Mena, the son of Matha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mehalilel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now let me read that one more time. There, there's this pattern we get into, and even as I read it, I want to go faster and get through to the end, but these genealogies are given to us for a reason. And when we remember that Luke set out to give us an orderly account of the life of Jesus, the Son of God, the the Messiah who was to come, he's intentional in what he puts here. But what we also notice is that in Matthew, in his gospel, he gives us a list of names. And where we get a little confused is from from Joseph down to David, they're two different lists. They, They don't match. So figure that out and come back to me next week. So. No, they, they differ. And these genealogies, they actually differ in a, in a few different ways. And, and there's been many attempts to kind of reconcile these lists. Some see the list of Matthew as really tracing the genealogy of, of Joseph or more the royal heritage of Jesus. And some see Luke's genealogy as tracing Mary's line. Uh, and, and more of the, the prophetic, I mean, it goes from Nathan, not to Solomon after David, the prophetic line of, of Jesus' life. And I, I tend to think that that might be the most likely of answers, but this is just, I'll be honest with you, there's, there's not a clear definitive, oh, this is it. This is the answer to why these two are different. But but I want us to pay attention to to what is happening in each of those genealogies because in Matthew's genealogy, we have these three groups of 14 that get us all the way back to Abraham. And those three groups of 14 are are presented in the Gospel of Matthew to remind us that Jesus is king. That's what this is reminding us of over, over and over and over again, that Jesus is king. That's that genealogy in Matthew. That's how it starts. It also includes four women which we would actually expect to see more in Luke because Luke is more inclusive of women in his gospel but Matthew includes that showing us again kind of the flaws and faults of of some of the sins that occurred uh, in the the lineage of Jesus. And so Luke gives us this list of 77 names that gets down to God as the final uh, list of names. Some see that as uh, 11 groups of of 7 that are all put together and 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 paired apart But here's here's what Luke is driving at. And I'm already giving you the answer. Because Luke, right, what are we saying? Luke is good news for everyone. And Luke's genealogy doesn't stop at Abraham. He's not saying this is just good news for the Hebrew people. This is not just good news for Jewish people. No, he takes it all the way back to Adam where everything got askew, where everything uh, went off the rails and the disobedience of Adam and Eve when they, they didn't trust God at his word. And Luke's taking us all the way back, saying, no, 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 this good news is for the redemption of all humanity, for everyone who turns to Jesus. And he uses this uh, list. He, he goes in descending order. He starts with Jesus and works his way back to Abraham. And Matthew's genealogy flips it. He starts with Abraham and works uh, down to Jesus. But here he's taking us all the way down. And what's, what's the last thing that we read in verse 38? He says, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now what did Jesus just hear from God? You're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Luke is making it clear that Jesus has come for everyone. And in the words of Paul, we read in uh, 1 Corinthians 15.22, it says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Luke is reminding us as he's going to do throughout, he's going to tie Jesus' life back to the Hebrew scriptures that the new Adam has come, the one who is, will fulfill and live all righteousness on our behalf. He's, he's here and he will undo all that has been done. He will offer a new way of life for each and every one of us. Romans emphasizes the same thing. Romans five seventeen through nineteen says, "For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men." For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. By the one all have sinned, but by the one all will be saved. This is what this is saying. And and Luke is reminding us with this genealogy, he's driving it back, and he's saying Jesus has come to undo the sin that has plagued us since the very beginning in Adam. Now the new Adam is here to set the course, to show us, to pave the way for the way in which we are to go. So where does this lead us? Where does this, uh, where do we take this? And I think there's a, a few things that we need to pay attention to in this passage. The first is this, Jesus' ministry begins with identity. He is the beloved. He is the son of God. Luke is making that abundantly clear. From the onset of his ministry, his identity is marked by the words of God being spoken over him, the spirit of God descending upon him, and the love of God. That's what we see propelling the ministry of Jesus. The word of God, the spirit, and the love of God. And Luke is making it clear that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, and he is worthy of our trust, he's worthy of our devotion, he's worthy of our lives being centered on him. And the second thing, God has sent the beloved to rescue us. God has sent his beloved one to rescue us. And here's where this becomes so important. That God has come for you. That God sees you as worthy of rescue. Why? Because of his great love. And when you say yes to Jesus, you are seen by God through the lens of Jesus. You are beloved sons and daughters with whom he is well pleased. You are forgiven You are free. You are his children. You are co heirs with Christ when we identify with Jesus. When we say yes to Jesus, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. This is our true identity. This is the identity that matters above all other identities. This is why C.S. Lewis says, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Life gets so messy when we put our identity, when we define ourselves solely by what we do, our jobs, our family, our desires, our race, our sexuality. When we wrongly order our hearts, we forget That we are first and foremost to identify as sons and daughters of God. Living in that identity. Stepping forward in the love of God. And why do we love? Is it because we really chose God so and pursued him so much? No, we love because he first loved us. And how did he show his love? By sending the beloved for us. And Jesus stepped into our mess, identifying with us. Even in baptism, he didn't have to repent, but he said, I'm going to show you the way because you matter and you are worth it to me. That I will give all that I have. That in you, you may have, that in me, you may have life. See, when we wrongly order our hearts or when we uh, get lost in defining ourselves by our own voice, our own failures, our own faults, our own flaws. We're missing out on who we are truly designed to be as sons and daughters of God. And in Christ, you are loved wholly and deeply. And so rather than just going, that's, that's nice. I need that on a rainy day, right? Some of us, we've been living in the darkness of the clouds, and we're starting to feel it in our souls. And so we need this like a ray of sunshine to lift our spirits. But I don't want to just run past this. And I don't want this to just sound like flowerly, flower, flowery language, you know. Oh, this is so nice that Jesus loves you. No, you are known and you are loved by the king. And he came and he gave all that you might have life in him. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Jesus was not exclusive with who he was. No, he pulls us in, he grafts us into the family of God, and he grabs everyone who says yes to him. He says, You're with me. You're mine now. Don't let anyone else define you. You're mine. So say yes to Jesus. Know you are loved. He has you. He has you. And then this is the, the last thing. His lineage, his, his family, it matters. Because it points to the scope of his mission. He has not just come for some people. He's not just come for the people of Abraham. But he's come for all of humanity. This means that each of us are invited into the family of God. And why is that significant? That we would be invited into the family of God to be defined and identified by his love over us. Why, why would that matter? Well, I, I know that some in this room have families that are broken. Broken families that have never felt like family. We've never had a clear example. So when we hear things like Father God or we hear things like the family of God, there's a little bit of a flinch that happens because you're like, I'm not sure. That doesn't seem like a safe thing to me because I've never experienced that. Some of us in this room, we have families that, that know us well, that we've walked with and some don't. For some, that idea of family feels foreign or totally unattainable. And what I I so appreciate is that if you go through that list of Jesus' genealogy, if you look at it in Matthew, you look at it in Luke, the names that you know that become familiar, that jump out, you suddenly start to see that this family line of Jesus contains murderers, adulterers, liars, cheats, brokenness, sin. All of us are represented in there somewhere. But what we see in Jesus is he does not abandon this. No, he brings redemption, restoration, and new hope. And when you say yes to Jesus, Christ in you is the hope of glory. So maybe your family is broken. Maybe you you never knew your parents. Maybe you felt as though you were abandoned. God has not abandoned you. And he's pulling you in to his family and he's saying, you are mine, you are my beloved, I've got you and I am with you and I am for you. When we say yes to Jesus, we enter into the family of God and the full strength of God is for us. And if God is for us, then what can possibly come against us? But here's the other hope in that. Because some of us are allowing our, our failures or our past decisions to define us. That has become our identity. That I'm just going to hand the baggage of my life onto my kids or whoever's coming after me. That's just what they're stuck with. But in this, what Jesus is modeling for us, he's saying, no, 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 no. You can be the transitional generation. You can shift. You can take what's broken and through me, bring about restoration. It does not have to be what it always has been. Rachel and I often joke. You know, certain days in parenting, you feel like you're nailing it. And certain days, you're like, what are we doing? And you're like, what, what are our kids going to have to go to therapy for? You know, what are they going to be like? Well, mom and dad, you know, they ruined us this way. Because we all have flaws. We all have faults. We all have failures. I've had to apologize or seek the forgiveness of my kids because I haven't always shown up well. But what we too often forget, and when we forget who we really are, is that Jesus repairs. Jesus restores. And Jesus expands the family of God. And he's come for you. He's pulling you into his lineage, his family tree. And he's saying, you're with me. So maybe you're in this room and and when we talk around who are you, all you can think about is the things that you're not doing. All the ways that you're not measuring up. All the ways that you're just pretending and faking it through life and you feel like that's just who I am. So that when you're alone, you feel like the word failure would be a great way to identify yourself. But in Christ... And through Christ, God wants to break you free, you and the generations that come after you. For in Christ, there is freedom, there is victory, and the brokenness of the past does not have to be carried into your future. So my encouragement to you would be to bring these to him now, remembering That when you say yes to Jesus, you are a child of God. And that is what defines you. That you are his. And he is yours. And in saying yes to Jesus, you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. And so what Jesus is showing us. Is that what was once impossible has, made, that has been made possible. And that Jesus in becoming like us has made it possible for us to become like him. And he gives us his spirit coursing through us. Empowering and equipping us. To break us free of those habits. And so some of you in here this morning. What you simply need to say. Is I'm a child of God. That's is who I am. I am a, I'm a child of God that is free and forgiven in Christ. And I am, I am loved. And allow that to be the identity that you step forward in. Because Christ has accomplished for you what you could never accomplish on your own. And in becoming like us, he made it possible for us to become like him. We you pray with me? Father, I thank you that uh, this significant moment w- was written down and recorded, in which you looked at your son and said, This is my beloved. That you, you showed us the, the, the force of your love as the Spirit descended upon him, and that this would be so key and instrumental. the way in which Jesus would would live. That when the trials would come, when uh, people would push and prod, when they would question him, when his own family would question him, when people would turn on him, when he would be betrayed by those closest to him, Father, he knew who he was, that he is the beloved son, he's the Messiah. And that he invites each of us to join with him as beloved children of God. When we say yes to Jesus, when we recognize our need, because we all have need, we all feel the weight of our sins, our brokenness. But Jesus, you came to show us a new way you broke us of the bondage of the past and you give us a freedom to live into a new identity. For in Christ Jesus, we are all a new creation. And so, Father, where we feel uh, the weight of our sin, God, would we turn that over to you? Would we seek your forgiveness? But also, God, would we, in the midst of of seeking that forgiveness, would we trust in your forgiveness that we are new creations in you, that new life is possible in you, a new way of living is possible because of you. And would we find rest as beloved children of God? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we thank you that where there was death, you have truly brought life. And that, Jesus, you came to pave the way that we would flourish in relationship with you. And so would we fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith? Would we trust in your strength and not merely in our own? And would your voice be the voice that defines who we are? We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. As we uh, conclude this morning, um, we will uh, next week look at how even Jesus' own understanding and identity was questioned by the enemy, which I think we've all felt that in different ways. Are you really a follower of Jesus or are you not? So I encourage you to be back with us next week. But as we find rest in being the beloved, that God sent his son out of love that we might have life in him. That you are a son and daughter of the king when you say yes to Jesus. And so let these words uh, infuse in your week. And this is love, and this is the love of God. It was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. May we know the love of God. May it define who we are as his people. And may that love spill over into all we encounter this week. So may you go in his grace. May you know his peace And may you join with us on Wednesday as we talk around what it means to be a kingdom people. God bless you. We'll see you Wednesday night.